You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Good morning, Field Church. Thank you so much for joining us this morning for worship. I'm grateful uh, for you guys, and, and I'm thankful that I get to be here today to, to preach the message. Um, if I haven't had a chance to meet you before, uh, I'm one of the lead pastors here at the Field Church. My name's Chad Wiles, and I oversee our discipleship and counseling ministries here. Uh, normally, when you see me, um, I'm usually doing a counseling topic or a sermon that's based upon uh, an issue, a life-controlling issue. Um, but today, I get the privilege to continue on in our series through Luke, and we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. And so I'm so excited that I get a chance to do this. I'm privileged um, to be able to help us walk through, uh, especially in what we're going to be looking at today, because today is very focused on defining what a disciple is um, through Luke 10. Before we jump into Luke 10, let me uh, give us a little bit of context, remind us what we've been walking through. If you haven't been with us the past few weeks, uh, Pastor Sam and Pastor Taylor um, have finished up through Luke 9, and that marks the end of Jesus' Galilean ministry. So from chapter 1 all the way up until this point, we've seen Jesus' birth and his ministry, and the focus has been upon Jesus showing and defining that he is God. He's the Son of Man, and he's the Son of God. And he is the true Messiah and the King. And right now, he has transitioned. He has set his face upon Jerusalem. And we're going to be seeing that through the rest of the book. And this journey towards Jerusalem is going to last for a few months, several months. Um, and it's going to take a lot of uh, time to get to Jerusalem, even though it, it wouldn't be that, that long of a journey as, as Pastor Sam has, has uh, shared with us in the past. But this journey is going to mainly take place in Judea and the east of the Jordan in Perea. And the journey will end with Christ's arrival in Jerusalem for the events of the Passover, which will culminate in his death, burial, and resurrection, and finally his ascension. And so there's a lot of different reasons um, that we're gonna learn over the next um, few weeks and probably a couple years, <laughs> as you know. Um, there's a lot of reasons and purposes that Jesus is taking his time on this journey. But one of the main purposes is to prepare his disciples to continue the work of spreading the message of the gospel after his ascension. And I'm excited for our journey through the rest of this book because um, as for myself, um, my wife and I, we get a chance to oversee our, our discipleship ministry here at the field. And, and we're so excited because we get to be discipled by Christ himself through uh, this book. <clears throat> and we get to look at how he taught his disciples and he's gonna truly define what a disciple is and how a disciple is supposed to live and live out the mission. And we love shepherding our church. Maria and I, like I said, we get this chance to do this and discipling and equipping our church um, to make disciples as well. But we're continually studying and taking our time to make sure that we're being faithful to make disciples in the way that God has intended, us, has intended for us to do so. 
in our years of experience, you know, I've, I've been in ministry now for about 12 years. Uh, my wife and I, we met in a ministry called Campus Outreach, which many of you have heard about because we've had a chance to be a part of launching one of those on Southeastern's campus. And um, we're grateful to be a part of that ministry with Josh Miller and with Matt and um, Gilbo. I almost forgot his last name there. <laughs> um, but as we've been spending these years in discipleship ourselves, growing as disciples, and then being in charge of figuring out how to best equip our people, um, we've studied a lot of different ways, um, a lot of different methods. And in our years of experience, we've run across many different philosophies and theologies about discipleship that are commonly taught and practiced that are not biblical. And we have to be careful about those. The main warning light or red flag that I have found um, for seeing that there may be a, a, a different philosophy or theology that's not biblical um, is if it's focused on man and not on God. If the heart of the discipleship, the method is focused on man and not upon God, that's a major red flag because we're not the point. We see a lot of these, some of the, the theologies that we see in our world around us right now, two of the main ones that we see, one is the word of faith movement um, that has... Um, been very prevalent up in the American in the American culture. Within this, we see things like faith healings, um, pastors like uh, Benny Hinn. Some of you may have heard of where um, going around and and um, claiming to be able to heal people miraculously. Um, and a lot of extra charismatic movements, and especially in in the Pentecostal denomination, where the focus is, is upon the gifts and not the gift giver. Or the prosperity gospel, where the message is if you follow God and, and do what he has us to do, then he's gonna give you the desires of your heart and give you your best life now. And it's more of a self-help uh, than it is a focus upon Jesus Christ. And essentially in all these uh, movements or churches, the idea is if you obey God, he'll give you what you want. Whether it be money, power, good health, miracles, make you special, whatever the case may be, that's kind of the basis and the focus. On the other side of that coin, we see a lot of religious organizations or um, sectors that is focused upon the works of the church and works-based religion. Uh, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, Catholicism is a few that we've seen. And these are based upon the church. The hope is being a part of the church. And in both, these are works-based mentalities that relies upon the person to either uphold their salvation and or a heavy focus on what the per person will gain through following God or the version that is taught. But those pitfalls don't end outside the evangelical community, but they happen within it as well. Two pitfalls that I've seen in my studies and, and have even been a part of myself at times um, is within the evangelical community, I, I see two different methods or two different um, pitfalls, if you will. One, I've deemed as the method-focused ministry versus the knowledge-focused ministry. The method-focused ministry is um, defined, as we see in our culture today, as a seeker-sensitive movement, method-focused. These are well-meaning pastors that the focus of the method is, is to reach the lost person, which is a great desire, absolutely a biblical desire. But the focus is to cater towards the lost person in order to, 
to get them to be a part of the church. What happens is when that's the main focus, a lot of times is we end up speaking towards the needs of that community. We try to give Christianity maybe an extra cool factor, right? Sunday mornings begin to look more like an infomercial about why you should choose Jesus and the benefits of being a Christian. And it offers an easy believism a lot of times to help people come in. And, and unfortunately what this can really lead to is maybe a false sense of salvation or if they do truly become a believer in Christ through one of these, these ministries, which it happens, their faith is usually weak and probably won't uphold up under trials and tribulations. And so that's one pitfall that we've seen, like I said, with a, a, a right desire to see lost people saved, but takes away from or moves away from what a true disciple should look like. The other side is knowledge focused a heavy on theological study and, and can be short on grace and humility. The atmosphere lends itself to more of an argumentative evangelism. Uh, it can be very closed in, very us against the world mentality, which once again, the desire is good to grow in theological knowledge and understanding, absolutely a good, knowledge, a good desire, but misses the mark of the heart of a true disciple. Because the issue isn't having good methods, or growing in theological understanding. Both are essential to the Christian and to the disciple of Christ. The heart is the issue. The same thing we've seen in those uh, other theological movements that we looked at earlier is the same here, that the heart is more man-centered, man-focused, maybe selfishly driven than it is God-focused. So let us define this as we're gonna define today through John 10, which is, the heart of a true disciple of Jesus Christ is focused on the glory of God and the spread of his image throughout the world. I'll say it again. The heart of a true disciple of Jesus Christ is focused on the glory of God and the spread of his image throughout the world. We see this um, theme started in Genesis 1:26 through 28, where God says to, uh, to us in creation, he says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see, God created us in his image for his glory. And when he tells man to be fruitful and multiply, the point is to spread his image throughout the entire earth. That's the point of our lives. That's the point of our marriages, is to be a gospel light to the world. It's the point of our parenting, to raise up uh, future adults who love Jesus, right? It's the point of our work. It's the point of our creativity. It's the point of everything that we do is to bring God glory and to spread his image throughout the entire earth. And so what that tells us then is when it comes to being a true disciple, as Christ is gonna show us today in Luke 10, it's not about you. It's not about us. It's about God. And that's what we're gonna see as we read Luke 10, one through three. And so without further ado, let me pray for us as we dive into our passage today and let's look and see what Christ has to say to, to us through what he instructs his disciples to do. 
Father God, thank you so much for your word, for your grace, for your mercy. God, how you have given us everything that we need. Your word is sufficient to show us what it looks like to, to live for you and to walk with you and to know you deeply. And I pray, Lord, you give me wisdom that you'd speak clearly through my words today and through your passage. Give me your words to speak, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you have your Bibles, and hopefully you do, turn to Luke chapter 10, and we're gonna focus in on verses one through three. And it says this, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. All right. Well, we see here, he sends out 72. My version says 72. Some versions of, of scripture will say 70. Um, I just wanna address that real quickly in the research. Basically, some manuscripts say 70, and it's not entirely clear why some say 70 and some say 72, but I just want you to understand that these are both considered accurate and does not take away from the meaning or the purpose of the text. And so whether yours says 70 or 72, just understanding that Jesus is putting together teams of disciples to go out ahead of him um, into the towns. And so who are the 72 disciples? My version, I'm in the English Standard Version, says 72, so I'm gonna preach from that standpoint. Well, <clears throat> who were these 72 disciples? Well, these 72 disciples met the criteria of true disciples, right? They were ordinary people, just like the 12, who saw Christ as the Messiah and were willing to lay down their lives and take up their cross to follow Jesus. See, one of the main traits of a true disciple and a true disciple's heart is a total dependence upon Jesus. We see this in Luke 9, 23 through 27. You've, we've went through this in past messages. Pastor Sam has preached on this. I encourage you to go back and hear that. Um, but I wanna look at that passage right now. Luke 9, 23 through 27 says, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and, and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you the truth, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. See a true disciple lays down his life and humbly trusts in Jesus as Lord. See, many, there were many more than these 70 or 12 following Jesus throughout his ministry. We've seen this as we've looked through the gospel of, of Luke, and we see this in other gospels as well. Many followed Christ, but did so out of self-interest, and eventually they walked away. One of the places we see this is in John 6, 52 through 66. When Jesus was there, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus had just said, to be my disciple, you have to eat of my flesh, drink of my blood. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks of my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. And when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense to this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who, who were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one came, can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. I don't have time to break down this entire passage, but there's so much here. But essentially in this, Jesus was talking about a spiritual bread, a spiritual life. When he's saying, drink of my flesh and my blood, or eat of my flesh, drink of my blood, he's, he's referring back to the manna that came down from heaven that sustained the Israelites through the wilderness with Moses. And he's saying even here, he said, this bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And he goes on to say that this is a spiritual uh, saying, right? But these disciples heard this and said, this is too hard to be fully dependent upon Jesus in the way of that we're fully dependent upon bread and water to live, they were not willing to do that. And so because of that, they turned back and they no longer walked with him because that kind of dependence means it's not about you and it may take you to places that you yourself wouldn't want to go. And so they turned away. And these disciples that we have today, these 70 or 72, they were willing to do that. They depended upon Jesus in that kind of way and they were true disciples who were willing to lay their lives down. The next question that we have is why did they travel in pairs? Why did he send them out two by two? Well, we see a couple reasons that I think that we can glean from this. Number one, they were able to support and encourage one another along the journey. He sent them out two by two. Ecclesiastes 4, uh, verse nine through 12, we see Solomon say this, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has no one, not another, to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. And so we see Jesus sending them out two by two. And I think it's to be able to support and encourage one another along this missional journey. And we believe in this. Uh, you know, Sam and I, we we came here and planted together because we knew that, that our strengths together and, and the ability to support one another and encourage one another while planting a church would, would be better than just one. It doesn't mean that one alone is wrong, but it just means it is better and, and I think a better practice when it comes to um, doing something difficult or, or a hard journey. But the second and more importantly, it fulfilled the law's requirement of the evidence of two to three witnesses. So they encouraged and supported one another, but it fulfilled the law's requirements of the evidence of two to three witnesses. We see Deuteronomy 19, 15, he says, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. 
Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So you see here, Jesus is sending out disciples two by two ahead of him into every town. And we're going to talk about why in a second. But for their witness or their testimony about Jesus to be seen as valid, you know, we see here that it suffices for two to three witnesses. And so there's a reason for that. It's to, to uphold and to validate the testimony that they're going to be giving. And so as they're going out, and as, he, as Jesus begins to instruct them for their, their journey, <clears throat> I've seen here, and I believe there are three things that Jesus is trying to show us about the role and responsibility of a disciple. And so we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at these three different roles and responsibilities of a disciple that defines the work and the identity of a disciple of Jesus Christ. Number one, the first role that we see is the role of an ambassador. The role of an ambassador. And the responsibility of the ambassador is to declare the message of the presence of the king and the reality of a kingdom. Now, for us, many of us, we, we only have reference to kingdoms or kings or monarchies from historical data or from, from what is a version of that in England right now or from Disney cartoons or movies about what a kingdom is. And so let me define for us what a kingdom is so that we can understand what an ambassador's job is. A kingdom is a realm, sphere, or territory ruled by an absolute monarch who functions with absolute power and authority. So underneath this backdrop, an ambassador's job was to go forth and announce the presence of a king in a coming kingdom. And a lot of times throughout history, the ambassador's job was that of bad news or of war language. When they came to a town, it was to let people know there's a new king coming into town and you got two choices, join up or be destroyed. And that's not what Jesus is doing here. And we'll look at a lot of different aspects of the ambassador here in a second. But in this term, the ambassadors were to go, go before Jesus into the towns, announcing the, the current presence of the King Jesus and the reality of the kingdom that is to come. John MacArthur, in his commentary, uh, refers to them as the first kingdom missionaries. And so the kingdom is a central theme of the gospel message. And really, if we look through the entire biblical story from Genesis to Revelation, it's the reality, the story is the reality of a war between two kingdoms from beginning to end. We see the reality of two kingdoms. Look with me in Genesis 3.15, where after Adam and Eve broke God's one rule and ate of the fruit of the tree of, of knowledge, um, sin came into the world and God began to give out the punishments for that sin. But within the punishments, he gave the message of the gospel, and we see it in Genesis 3.15, the first message of the gospel, where he says, I will put enmity, which means direct opposition, between you and the woman, he's speaking to the serpent or Satan, and between your offspring and her offspring, you shall bruise your head and you shall bruise, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And giving that uh, picture of the son of man crushing the head of the serpent, Satan 
defeating sin and death. And so we see this lived out fully within Jesus Christ. But we've seen these pictures all throughout Scripture as you've read through your Bible, through Genesis all the way up until now. We've seen these different pictures, we call them antitypes of the coming Messiah, that they're not the fullness of him, but they're pictures of this, of this um, covenant between God and man of how he's gonna restore uh, his kingdom. We see it through Noah in, in Genesis where the world had become so sinful and the, son of, the kingdom of, of the world or the seed of the serpent had taken over and was ruling the land so much so that God through Noah judged the world and destroyed it with a flood, keeping Noah, keeping his family and crushing the head of the serpent. We see Moses in his battle against Pharaoh and the Egyptians and how um, he went to battle there and, and God defeated um, uh, the nation of Egypt and, and brought them into the promised land, which represented the new Eden that Joshua then gets to go in and the wars and the whole point of, of clearing out the promised land so that Israel could set up camp within that was the purpose of this very thing where the son of man would, would eventually destroy uh, the seed of the serpent. And this all culminates in Christ Jesus and what he does on the cross. And so we see these two kingdoms at war. And there's two kingdoms. There, there are definitely no free agents. I just want you to be, to be very clear about this, that you're in one of the two camps. There are two kingdoms happening right now. The, the big issue is a war between the two, and you're in one of two camps. The kingdom of the world is the default mode for all of humanity due to our sin. See, the kingdom of the world ruled by Satan, and it's the seeds of the serpent. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 tells us this, speaking about us who are now believers even. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now because of our sin, our default mode, mode sorry, is the kingdom of the world. We may not actively worship Satan in the way um, that we may think about that, but because of our sin, because of our desire to serve ourselves and to want what we want, we are part of this kingdom. And then there's the second kingdom, the kingdom of God. It's, this is a universal kingdom where Christ is the one true king who rules sovereignly over all creation. All of creation has been put under his rule and his reign. Hebrews 2, 5-9 says this, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death, death for everyone. That through the cross, Christ has defeated sin and death and he, is, he rules and reigns currently as king over all things. Everything is in subjection under his feet. 
Matthew 28, 16 through 20, when he gives the great commission and commissions the disciples. When he's speaking to the 11, Judas, not in the picture at this point. It says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus speaking about his authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That we as ambassadors of the kingdom of God do so under the authority of the king. See, the message of the ambassador of Christ is one of repentance and belief in Christ as Lord. See, because all of us by default find ourselves in the, the kingdom of the world, we need a savior to allow us to become a part of the kingdom of God. And the only way into the kingdom of God is through Christ himself. Jesus says in John 14, six, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. See, grace can only be realized through the reality of pending doom that we deserve because of our sin. Total depravity, against that backdrop of total depravity, helplessness, death, the reality that we're gonna live eternally apart from God allows the grace of Jesus Christ, how he came and he died and he, he lived a perfect life, died on the cross for mine and your sins so that anyone who believes in him can be saved. That is grace, that is mercy. And see, I'm worried. I'm worried that some of us have not come to the grips of the reality of our sin. I'm worried that some of us are not gripped by the urgency of the message. We're ambassadors for Christ. We're called to take the message to those who are perishing and doomed for all eternity. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21, Paul says it this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So we have that ministry as believers, as ambassadors, right? That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. See, our message is a message of hope and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, here it is, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. And we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That the world is doomed and falling away. And we ourselves were some of those people. But because Jesus Christ came and did what he did, we're a new creation and we've been reconciled to God and we are the ones that are supposed to take that message to the world. We are the ones that God is making his appeal through. It is our duty, our joy, our delight to be the ambassadors of Christ, to make the message of the gospel known throughout all the land. Listen, it is normative. Hear me say this. It is normative as a disciple to share the message of the gospel. Some reason, somehow, over the decades or the, or the years, 
we have found ourselves in a, in a version of Christianity that says that's not necessarily a part of our task. That that's not normal. That's for like the super serious Christian or that's for the pastor to do. And this comes from that seeker sensitive type movement that we talked about where this easy believism that we're not supposed to necessarily learn how to make disciples that, that it's about us, that it's just about us being free from our sin. And that's not true. That's not a true disciple. It is normal for us to share our faith. Listen, there are no excuses, no excuses. It's not okay for us to say, well, we just don't know enough or I don't really know how to share my faith or I don't, I'm afraid to do so. These are all true things and I'm empathetic to that, but that's the point of us equipping one another to make disciples. Listen, if you don't know how, that's okay. There is a time of learning, but we have so many avenues here at the Field Church and hopefully um, other churches do as well. But here at our church, we'll teach you how to share your faith. We have a whole track, take us 30 minutes. We'll walk through it. We'll learn the scriptures and we'll teach you how to, how to talk to your neighbor or your friend. We do seminars on relationship building, building long-term relationships to love someone well enough to be able to share your faith. We have different avenues of discipleship to help you grow in your faith and your understanding of the gospel. Listen, there is no excuse. It comes down to your heart and your desire to wanna be an ambassador. That's all it comes down to. And this goes for myself, myself included. I wanna be brokenhearted. I wanna be gripped by the reality of sin. And I wanna be gripped by the urgency of the message that if someone doesn't hear, they have no opportunity to know and believe in Christ and they may spend the rest of their eternity apart from him. I don't want that to be the case. And if, and if he has called me to be an ambassador and make his appeal through me, what an honor that that is. And I wanna be able to do that. And I want you to be able to do the same. And so we see as the first role and responsibility of a true disciple is to be an ambassador for the king to go and share the message of the gospel. The second role is laborer. We see laborer in, in verse two. The responsibility of the laborer is, to be, is the faithful work of sowing seeds of the gospel and reaping the fruit of true believers in Christ. Once again, I'll say the responsibility of the laborer is the faithful work of sowing seeds of the gospel and reaping the fruit of true believers in Christ. I love this picture of laborer. Many of you know me. I grew up on a um, hundred acre cattle and tobacco farm. We had gardens. I wouldn't necessarily recommend that we grow tobacco now, but hey, I didn't pick what we grew. Um, but this idea of a laborer, I love this picture because it helps us balance this idealism or maybe the pride that we may have of this idealism of an ambassador, right? We don't, we don't want to act as if because of Christ, now that we're noble or that we're better than, right? As the world may define something like that. But this idea of laborers gives us this picture of getting our hands dirty, right? This blue collar, humble worker. And it's the picture of our king. We're representing the king, the ambassador, right? And Jesus was a servant king, right? Philippians 2, five through eight, he says, have this mind among yourselves, Paul speaking here, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men 
and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so Jesus, he uses this language of laborer, this servant, this humble worker, this blue collar worker. And that's who we are. We're ordinary men. He didn't choose the smartest or the greatest. Certainly he didn't do that uh, through me. Man, I'm so thankful that he chooses ordinary men who are just committed and dependent upon Jesus because God gets the glory. And as a laborer, there's nothing fancy about a laborer. He's there to do the work. He's there to do the work. And we see in verse two, he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Let's stop there. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. This statement shows us the heart and compassion that Christ had for the world. We see in this statement, the harvest is plentiful. This is a compassionate statement. This is Jesus being brokenhearted. We can make this assumption um, because we see in, in Matthew 9, another version of when he says this very same thing. But Jesus, he's a man of sorrows, right? He looks upon the people with compassion. He's gripped by it because Jesus knows the horrors of hell more than we do. We just have a picture of that reality. Jesus knows it and is gripped by it. And so in Matthew 9, where we see this again, we see in verses 35 through 37, it says this, it says, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every, every uh, affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. This, this statement by Jesus is a compassionate statement. He looks upon the crowds. When he's telling his 72 disciples to go out into the land as ambassadors, it's not with this boastful, kingdom-minded, although Jesus could have had this attitude. He, de- he deserved it. He was God. But instead, he had a compassionate attitude. He says, listen, the, the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few. When you're going into the towns and you're sharing the message of the gospel, it's with compassion so that they may know me. They may understand the truth about the king and may come to know me by having faith in me. This is the attitude that he's taken. And I just ask you, when you're thinking about this, when you think about this statement by Jesus, what do you see when you see your neighbor? What do you see when you see your coworker? What do you see when you see your family member who denies Jesus Christ? Do you look with indignation or with a boastful, prideful attitude? Or do you have the same lens that you look through like Christ, that you see people who are sheep without a shepherd who need Jesus and who are lost? And do you have compassion upon them? That as a true disciple of Jesus Christ, we're called to have compassion. In this same statement that Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. We also see Something else, this word is, is very important. This word is implies that the fruit already exists. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. In this statement, Jesus is speaking about the sovereignty and the predestin- sovereignty of God and the predestination of the saints. We don't like to usually talk about that. We gotta address it, it's right here. The harvest is plentiful. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 1, four through five, says, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, 
according to the purpose of his will. That there is a reality of God's sovereignty that he already knows who is his. He is, he is the one who creates the fruit. So how do we reconcile this? See, God's sovereignty and salvation does not cancel out human responsibility. And that's a tough one for us to wrap our minds around. How can God be fully sovereign, know who is his already, but at the same time hold us responsible for our choices? See, there's a mystery here. We have to understand that God works outside of the reality that we live, live in. And so that mystery has to rest upon God. We gotta put it there upon God, knowing that we don't know exactly how that works, but we gotta trust in his goodness. We gotta trust that in the way that that works, that it is best, meaning that he did die for the entire world, that everyone does have an opportunity to believe in him, but at the same time, in his sovereignty, he knows who is his. See, God's sovereignty doesn't cancel out human responsibility, and God's sovereignty should create a bold brokenness for the lost around us. A bold brokenness. What do I mean by that? See, it should give us this, God's sovereignty should produce a confidence in evangelical zeal. Meaning, the, the weight and responsibility of someone believing in Jesus Christ does not rest upon, upon our ability to be good enough, to articulate clear enough, to convince someone strong enough. That God is the one who creates the fruit, not us. And so that should give us a boldness, but it should make us broken. We should desire for everyone to trust in Jesus Christ. And we know that, that God calls us to pray and we see that prayer moves the heart of God. And once again, we don't know how that works exactly, but at the same time, we trust that it does and we trust God in his character, right? And so it should give us a bold brokenness for the lost around us. I love this example of labor because it makes me think upon a garden. Growing up, we had gardens and when you planted the garden, you, you had no ability to make those plants grow. All you could do is be faithful in the things that allowed the environment of the seed to grow, right? You'd plow the, the ground up so that it would allow for the nutrients of the soil to come about. You'd keep the weeds out of it while the plants were small so it didn't choke them out. You'd water, you'd do all the things that would keep the plants healthy so that they would have the ability to grow. But it's God who brings the growth uh, in, in a farmer's garden, right? The gardener doesn't stand next to the plant and will it to grow or yell at it to grow and produce more fruit. That's not how it works. We have no control in that way. And that's the same thing with the gospel. See, life is already in the seed of the gospel. Life already exists in the message of the gospel. And our job is to sow those seeds and water those plants and create the environments to the best of our ability through loving our friends and our neighbors and loving them well and, and sharing with them the message of the gospel and creating that environment so that their hearts could be transformed by the Holy Spirit. But we cannot do that. It's God who does that. 1 Corinthians 3, 6, Paul says it this way, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Right? It's the same thing. And listen, when the, when the plants have grown, the fruit has come, there's an urgency to get the harvest done before time runs out. Listen, you've got a window of time before animals come and eat the fruit off your, your plants or they fall off and rot. There's a time, there's a, a moment as the plant grows of harvest. And so 
We as laborers have to be ready. And if you've got to harvest the entire garden by yourself, it's a frustrating and daunting task. But listen, here's what Jesus gives us next. He says, he says listen, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. But it says, therefore, we love those words. We ask ourselves, well, why is that therefore? If the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few, what should we do? So therefore, pray. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, God himself, to send out laborers into his harvest. Us as disciples, we, sh- we should want to be those laborers. We should, be, we should be ones who are inspired and encouraged to be those laborers, to have that sense of urgency to sow the seeds of the gospel and reap the harvest, to be there, to, to share the gospel and disciple as someone comes into a relationship with God. But we know that we can't do this on our own that this is the job of all disciples, right? And so we wanna pray. We wanna pray for more laborers. We wanna pray for more to help. We wanna pray for those who believe in Jesus to grow and, and get about the work and train up and equip the saints for that work of the ministry, right? And we wanna pray for more to come to know Jesus so that they become disciples and become more laborers. That's our prayer. Uh, John MacArthur, once again, I studying his commentary, he says it this way. I thought he said it so well, I just want you to hear it. He says, the Lord of the harvest is the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom the Father has committed all judgment. The compassionate Lord seeks to rescue people from his wrath and judgment through the prayers of believers. This is the paradox and wonder of the gospel. The judge commands his people to pray that more sinners be saved from his judgment. More than that, the more evangels to be sent to those sinners because the judge and executioner was himself executed to save others from being executed by him. We see in Jesus Christ the full character of God. We see God's judgment and wrath and we also see his mercy and compassion that he himself took on the judgment He himself was executed so that he would take the judgment we deserve in our place so that more could be saved from his judgment. Because he's a good God, judgment is coming. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few, and there's an urgency for this harvest. Let us be urgent. This should cause us to be broken, and this should cause us to be bold, and this should cause us to be urgent to be about the work of the ministry. As a laborer, our job is the work of sowing the gospel and reaping the harvest of true believers. So we see the role of ambassador and the responsibility of the message. We see the role of the laborer and the responsibility of the work. And last but not least, in verse three, we see the role of the lamb. It's like, oh, this is interesting. Yes, the role of the lamb. The responsibility is to be humble, gracious, and loving in our demeanor and words towards unbelievers. We see this in verse three. Once again, he says, go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. As lambs in the midst of wolves. This has to do with our conduct. Once again, Jesus' kingdom is not like the world's kingdom. It's the upside down world. He's a servant king, a loving king, a good king. His ambassadors are humble, laborers 
who go in with a message of reconciliation and our demeanor and our conduct should be the one of love, of humility, like a lamb. So who are the wolves? Well, the wolves are those who love the world. Remember, in our first point, we have those two kingdoms, right? The kingdom of the world, those who love the world, the authorities of the world, our friends, our family members who reject Jesus Christ, who love the world, and, and because they reject Jesus, they're gonna reject Jesus' followers, right? We're gonna see that. We're gonna see more persecution from those in the world, the authorities of the world, who don't believe in Jesus Christ. And make no mistake, it's not just a differing of opinion. When we understand these two kingdoms colliding, as we've already looked at, that there are things outside these spiritual forces that are causing these issues. We see that in Ephesians 6, that we don't fight against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of this realm. We also see the wolves in religious authorities, the self-righteous. We see religious zealots all over the world. Many in the Middle East are being executed for their faith or um, in other countries. And, and listen, we live in a pretty comfortable environment here in the United States, but don't get it twisted. Our faith is gonna be challenged. We're gonna be those lambs who face wolves. It's already happening. And it's only gonna to continue to get harder and harder. And we have to ask ourselves, are we gonna be those lamb-like people? How come we're lambs in the midst of wolves? Well, what does a lamb look like? Here's the characteristics of a lamb that I think will give us encouragement. The picture of a lamb is innocent, gentle, humble, vulnerable. You're like, that doesn't give me a whole lot of like encouragement when I'm thinking about going against wolves. Here's the encouragement, and here's the point. The lamb is reliant upon the strength of the shepherd. The lamb is reliant upon the strength of the shepherd. This is another passage that is showing us that our dependence has to be upon Jesus Christ. See, for the disciple of Jesus, our strength is not in our might or our cunning or our cleverness. We trust in the strength of our shepherd king, Jesus Christ. That is our comfort. That is our strength. We must be willing to suffer even to the point of death for the sake of the gospel going forth. See, we live for an eternal perspective. This world is not it. This world is the battleground between two kingdoms. But if we are in Christ Jesus, we have already won. The good news is if you read to the end of the book, God wins. He's already won. We're on the winning team. We're on the winning side. Yes, we may go through suffering. Yes, we may be slaughtered like lambs at times. But the message of the gospel will not continue to go, will not stop going forth. It'll only continue. That's what taking up our cross and following Jesus means. This life cannot be more important than the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. Listen, the disciples that we're reading about in the Bible, most if not all are martyred, suffer and die. We know the 12 are, but these 70, we know there was great persecution in the early days of Christianity and has been over the centuries and still goes on today in other countries. But the message of the gospel is strengthened through trials because our hope is in our shepherd. We cannot be stopped. But listen, we don't overcome evil with evil. We overcome evil with good. 
Romans 12, 17 through 21 says this, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome evil by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, good overcomes evil, even if it seems like evil is winning. When we have an eternal perspective, even if death is the cost, we never die. Because of Jesus Christ, we have life, life eternal. And so we know this is not over. It is, it is merely um, a temporary issue, but our eternity is secured. The next thing that we see is not only do we not overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. We see that love is our strength and love can only be found in Christ himself. Love is our strength. And for those who are in Christ Jesus, we now have the Holy Spirit. We have God living inside of us. We have the heart of Jesus Christ. Love is our strength. What draws people to the Lord is how we love one another and how we love them in ways the world never loves, right? First John 4, 7 through 21. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins, for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one's ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because we, he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe, that, believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is so, also are we in, in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar, for he who does not love his brother, whom he has Seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment ha we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Listen, our strength is love. And as we go about as ambassadors sharing the message of Jesus Christ, we do it with love. Remember our responsibility in our conduct as lambs is to be humble like our servant, or like our savior Jesus. 
to be gracious as God's been gracious with us and loving in our demeanor and words towards unbelievers, no matter what they do to us, no matter how they reject us. Because as we show them the love of Christ, that's what's gonna compel them. That's, that's what's gonna plant the seeds of the gospel. That's what's gonna help change their hearts. So as we close, I'm gonna ask you a few questions. Are you a true disciple? Just ask yourself this question. Are you willing to take up your cross and follow Jesus Christ? Or are you clinging to the things of this world? Are you faithful with the message? As an ambassador, are you faithfully sharing the message of Jesus Christ? Are you faithful with the work? Are you sowing seeds of the gospel? Are you reaping the true disciples of Jesus? Meaning, are you making disciples? Are you encouraging them in their faith? Are you helping them grow as God allows you to be a part of seeing someone come to know him? Does your conduct display your trust in the Savior? Is he your refuge and strength? Listen, I'll end with this. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And my prayer, my earnest prayer, is that in our church, more laborers will go into the harvest. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful for your mercy and your strength. God, we are grateful for your love. We're grateful that even though um, we deserve death because of our sin, you have made a way for us to come into your kingdom and be your children. And God, let us have uh, urgent joy to be those ambassadors to take the message of the gospel to those who need it. Let us labor diligently. Let's be intentional with our lives. Let's sow seeds of the gospel and let's disciple others, God, and help us to be humble and gracious in our actions so that people would see you and not us. And God, we wanna be faithful as your church. And I pray for all who are listening, Lord, that, that you would help them to become a true disciple of Jesus if they're not and to be bold uh, in the work of the gospel. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.